today, here's what I'd like to do. Today, I want to talk about two kinds of PRs. I love talking about PRs. Two kinds of PRs and how they work together. And then we're going to look at what the scriptures say about those two kinds of PRs in Philippians 3. And then we'll connect the two PRs in Philippians 3 to 4 things. In fact, here are the four things we're going to connect them with. This is an emerging framework that we're working on as a church where we're going to try to bring together into more of a comprehensive framework. How can we grow? How can we grow in a way that's real, in a way that's helpful? And we've identified big church, small church, personal resources, which we're really going to focus on here today, family resources. Now, it's implied that that outreach is going to be woven into every one of these things, but I do think you shouldn't be surprised if at some time in the future you don't see a, also a distinct category that talks about collaborative outreach or something like that. All right, so there's the framework. So let's work our way there. Let's begin by talking about PRs. And I think it's not just me that loves PRs. I want to make the case that everyone loves PRs. Everyone does. Men and women, young and old, introverts and extroverts, type A's and type B's. People of every tongue, tribe, and nation love PRs. And the type of PR I'm talking about right now are personal records. Personal records. Different people value different types. We don't all love the same personal records. But if you're an athlete, you love to set a personal record, I'm going to venture to say, in the pool or on the track or in the weight room or on the court or in the ring or on the pitch or in the gym or on the field. You love to set a new PR. If you're into gaming, which I'd imagine a couple of people are, you probably love to set PRs there too. Whether it's a new high score or unlocking some new thing that gamers unlock or discovering something or building something or creating something or discovering something that you've never discovered or seen or done before in your game. If you value academics, there might be some new GPA that you want to hit or you want to see yourself going up in your class rank. If you're an artist or musician, there's probably a new song that you'd love to master or a new technique you'd love to learn or some new level of artistry that you love to reach. You can reach a PR by checking something off your bucket list that you wanted to get checked off. You can set a new PR by holding your breath longer than you've held it before. Um, we were playing, we started playing that license plate game once on a trip um, with trying to find them from all the states. West... Virginia took us like three years. West Virginia, I have no idea. So we, we saw West Virginia like, woohoo, new record. We got all 50. We saw Alaska like 15 times before we saw new West Virginia. Okay, but I digress. PRs can involve all kinds of things, even more significant things than finding a West Virginia license plate. It could be hitting a new milestone in your career or income level. It could be setting a new sales record. For some folks, I'm so proud of you when you come and you say, I've set a new record. I've been sober for 15 days. I've been sober for 20 days. There's all kinds of areas we can set personal records. For some of us, we're working to set personal records when it comes to setting, taking our whole vacation, right? Or being home four nights a week, right? Trying to set these personal records. To give away a record amount of our time or our money to a God-honoring cause. If you want to set a personal record, I said there are two types of PRs we're going to talk about, and there's a place to write this in your notes. Let's talk about both of them. If you want to set a personal record, the other kind of PR is necessary, and there's a place to write this in your notes. If you want to set a personal record, personal records require the right personal what? Resources. 
If you want to set a personal record, it requires the right personal resources. If you want to set a new personal record, you have to identify the right personal resources to get you there. And you need to do more than just identify them. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Those who continue to set personal records apply personal resources that are aligned with their goals. And I want to link the goals right now specifically to what we've been talking about in the series, and that is growth. That's growth. Wherever you're at, if you're just getting started in your Christian faith, if you've been walking with God for years, wherever you're at, I want to make the case today that we're challenged through the scriptures. We're inspired. We're invited through the scriptures to continue to press on to new places that we've never been before. As we've been pressing into biblical principles through this series and best practices for people, we've been trying to say, how do we experience growth when it comes to our faith? Now, one of our go-tos at Emmanuel when it comes to best practices and the intersection of those and biblical principles is by looking at the writings of a first-century follower of Jesus named Paul. You can make a compelling case that Paul was the most spiritually mature follower of Jesus Christ to ever walk the planet. Paul began his faith walk as a rising star in the Jewish world. And following a dramatic conversion to Christianity, Paul became the most notable evangelist, the most successful church planter, and the most prolific writer of the entire New Testament period and beyond. This is a man who became a primary influencer for historical church heavyweights like St. Augustine and Martin Luther. And his teachings, this was fascinating, his teachings were accompanied by miraculous healings and events that we're still talking about and studying today. As mature in the faith as Paul was, Paul continued to pursue faith PRs all the way right up to the end. So let's take a look. If you have your Bibles with you, let's open to the book of Philippians. That's where we're going to spend our time today, the book of Philippians. We're going to focus most of our time in Philippians chapter 3, but I want to get a running start by looking at a verse that we've referenced multiple times before, but now you can see it in its, uh, where it's found. It's Philippians 121. We'll give you the address here today. And while you're turning there to Philippians 121, um, I want to point something out that I think is important. Now, it, while it's hard to date this letter, what we're looking at here today is a letter. It was given to real people, real time in history. This letter is hard to date with exact precision, but what we do know is that it came at the end of Paul's life, near the end of Paul's life. Now, why is that important? It's important because this isn't somebody who's just getting started, and he's writing to say, because he's going to talk about growing in, in, in his own words, um, he's going to talk about growing. This isn't just someone who's starting out in the faith saying, all right, I'm new to this. I got a lot of growing to do. This is end of the life, Paul. After a life of, of demonstrating that he was, again, arguably the most mature Christian ever to follow Jesus. This is someone at the end of his ministry, near the end of his ministry saying, I've got a lot of growing to do. Does that make sense? That's why I think this really, really matters. Okay, now let's look at where Paul was at in his faith journey at this point in his life. That's why I want us to start with Philippians 1.21. Again, a verse that we've quoted numerous times. Here it says this. He goes, this is where he was at in his faith. He says, for me to live is Christ. And I've said this so many times, and many of you have read this so many times. Complete it. To die is 
gain. That's where he was at at this point. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now let's turn to chapter 3, and let's look at some passages there, starting with verses 7 and 8. Paul expands on this theme of of maturity and growing, and he says in chapter 3, starting with verse 7, but whatever gain I had, he writes, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as what? What does he say? What does he say? Rubbish. I count all things, all things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's one thing to say these things. He backed them up with his life. And his life was marked by these types of things that we just read. So with that, how many of you just say, this guy's about as spiritually mature as they come? He is. And yet, if we continue to read, look what Paul writes when it comes to growing personally. He says this, picking up with verse 12, He goes, not that I've obtained this or I'm already perfect. I press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've obtained. As mature as Paul was, he believed there were new PRs in his faith for him yet to reach I came across this quote by a scholar named N.T. Wright as I was preparing for the message. It says this, Paul, he's clear about this. He hasn't arrived in that sense, nor has anyone else. True maturity, I love this, true maturity, he insists, actually means knowing that you haven't arrived. Can I get an amen? I mean, isn't that true of parenting, life, career? That's where maturity starts kicking in. When you go, I haven't arrived yet. I've got more to learn, and that you still must keep pressing on towards that goal, straining forward towards it like an athlete aiming not only at the finish line, but at the prize that waits beyond it. I love that phrase too. Like an athlete aiming not only at the finish line, but at the prize that waits beyond it. All right, so what does this look like in, in, in growth, spiritual growth? Well, we've studied the life of Jesus as we've done that and reflected on what it means to be a follower of his. We've identified six key areas of growth. And if you missed week one of the series, I'd encourage you to go online and, and listen to that or, or watch it because we tried to make the case with the time that we had as best we could that all six of those areas are essential. That all six of these, if you want to try to follow Jesus Christ, all six of these areas really, really matter. The conclusion we came to is you can't neglect any of them. You can't neglect any of them if you really want to pursue authentic Christianity. 
All right, well, if you want to PR in those things that matter most, here's the question. There's a place to write this in your notes along with what those six things are. If you missed uh, the, the series when we were there together, in the place to write this in your notes, what's your plan? What's your plan to PR this year in the things that matter most? What's your plan to reach new levels when it comes to discovering a more transformational walk with God, connecting with others in more meaningful ways, stewarding God's resources with God-honoring intent, serving our Christian brothers and sisters as Christ modeled and taught, reaching out in Jesus' name to those who are lost and hurting and leaving a legacy by handing off a brightly lit, well-fueled torch to the next generation. Now, it's one thing to say, okay, I got a goal, I'm going to do this. It's another thing to have a plan. came across this quote, um, earlier this year, it says this. If you can't describe what you're doing as a process, what does he say? You don't know what you're doing. If you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. Again, it's one thing to say I've got this lofty goal, but if you don't have some sort of plan in place to, to, to reach it, you don't know what you're doing. Well, in just a few minutes, I'm going to make the case that big church and small church can help with all of those areas. In fact, it brings a lot of things together. But first, let's go back to our text. Let's go to verse 17. Paul continues his thought, and he says, Brothers, sisters, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And then he gets a little emotional. He says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Oh, and then he says this phrase that really made me uncomfortable. With mindset on earthly things. I'm just going to hit pause on that one just for a second. For the sake of time, we can't go really far down this tangent today, but someday we've got to come back to this one. In fact, one of the notes I made to myself as I was preparing for this message, I said um, this year we were planning to do a series called Screen Time. I think this would be a good phrase to come back to during screen time. This whole idea of our mindset on earthly things. And it's important to have your mindset on earthly things if you have a kingdom perspective. And that'll make more sense if you don't already know what that means. That'll make more sense in a little bit. But when your mind are set on earthly things in an earthly way for extended periods of time, it can take you down paths that just aren't helpful and you lose track of what matters most. And especially when it comes to devices, I mean, where does our mind almost always go with any second of the time that we have, instead of here's my heart, Lord, it comes to earthly things. So just for what it's worth, let's come back. But I think we've got to come back to that topic at some point. All right, moving on. Picking up with verse 20. Paul says this, instead of just always having our mind set on earthly things in an earthly way, he wants to remind us our citizenship is where? That's where our citizenship is. Our citizenship is heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, this week, I I made time to to open up a number of different commentaries and and books to, to study this passage because sometimes it's the passages you've read the most that you really need to go back and study because you miss a lot of things because you're like, oh, I know that, I know that, I know that. But I pressed in and took a look at this and it was fascinating when you look at the historical context of this letter. Again, Philippians was written to real people living in a real city in a real point in time. The term 
that I, I learned this from a couple of my sources. The term that this translation translates as citizenship in English appears only here in the entire New Testament. That was interesting. That got me thinking, why? Why is the word that was translated here as citizenship only appearing in the book of Philippians? Scholars believe Paul was very purposeful through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in including this word in this particular letter. And it makes more sense when I dug into the context here. When Paul wrote Philippians, Philippi was a Roman colony. In 42 B.C., about 100 years before Paul first visited the area, the city was the setting for one of the great battles in a Roman civil war that erupted after the death of Julius Caesar. The victorious generals, including the future Emperor Augustus, gave the land in and around Philippi to several thousand Roman soldiers. So this is taking place in Greek. There's Greece. There's this modern-day Greece. There's this huge battle that goes on as part of a Roman civil war. One team wins, and they said, all right, soldiers, thousands of you, you get Philippi. You get the area around Philippi. Make this a Roman colony. We're giving it to you. It's in Greece, but we want you to live like you're Romans, like your citizenship is in Rome. Although this city was in modern-day Greece, it was ruled by, ruled by Roman law rather than cultural custom. If you were an official citizen of Philippi, you were also a citizen of Rome. I found this quote in one of my sources. It said this in a different commentary. Citizens of Philippi, a Roman colony, were automatically citizens of Rome, sharing all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens even though most of them had never been there. Paul's readers in Philippi therefore understand quite well what it means to be the citizens of the supreme city while not yet living there. To make it a little more rich as we start to dive in, again, stay with me. This has big-time implications regarding how we grow and why we grow. The task of a Roman citizen in a Roman colony like Philippi was to live as a Roman So, if Christians are citizens of the kingdom of God, there are implications then, right, with how we live in our context. Now, let me add one more layer here that the original recipients would have understood given their historical context. If things weren't going well for Roman colonists in Philippi, if they were invaded by an army from the north, which was a real threat, if a natural disaster occurred, as a Roman colony, they would call upon the Roman emperor for help, and they would await his arrival. In that time, in that place, the Roman emperor was referred to as the Savior. The Savior which adds another layer of richness to what we read in verse 17. Let's put this all together. Or verse earlier in chapter 3. It says this, I think it's verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await from it a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's connect the dots if you haven't already. If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, where's our ultimate citizenship? heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And to whom do we owe our greatest allegiance? 
Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan, and it's a great one, is for his people to live differently in all the right ways. To give the world a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like when his people live it out. To get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will look like when Jesus does come back and all things are as they should be. What does this have to do with growth? Paul is inviting us to experience and to model and to live out more and more and more and more and more of the kingdom life right here, right now. Amen. In Shoreview, Moundsview, Arden Hills, Roseville, wherever you call home. And as a church, we're going to continue to press on towards that goal. Well, one of the many things that we are committed to as a congregation is developing and offering personal and family resources that are holistic and integrated rather than just, here's another thing. You got to go away over there and, and do this. And you got to go way over there and do this. And, you know, trying to bring it all together. And I encourage you to write this in your notes. At Emmanuel, big church and small church are two complementary resources that can help you and your family discover, connect, steward, serve, reach out, and leave a legacy. And by complementary, I mean that they complement each other rather than like complementary breakfast, continental breakfast, you get the little muffin or whatever. We're talking something different here. They, they are two resources that complement each other and they can help you in all of those areas. We are committed to doing everything we can as a church to provide real assets and not just add-ons. We don't want to just add on to the guilt of all the stuff you already know you're not doing. We want to provide real assets that can help us grow in these areas in a way that actually works. And part of that, a big part of that, is what we call big church. Big church is simply, when do we all come together under one roof? When do we all come together as a church family? All ages, all stages. When do we come together around a common scripture, common songs? It would be things like Sunday mornings. It would be special days like Ash Wednesday, which is not this week. Not this week. <laughs> Praise God. My heart was like, oh, man, we got a lot to do. It's like Good Friday. It's like Christmas Eve. Eve. Some of you know what I mean by that. It's when we all come together. And then there's small church. How many of you were down and packed in that little room? I heard it got pretty warm. The room capacity, I think, is what, like 30 in there? You get 60 people packed in. Small church is a new initiative where we're going to give more structure and more help and support and resources to the idea of getting together with people that live next to you and trying to take these things deeper and make them more real and live them out. The essence of Christianity, we've said throughout the series, is following Jesus in community. Think what a win it would be if all of us went all in when it came to living like we were a kingdom colony. Like we were a kingdom colony. For example, take just one piece of that continuum, the discover piece. What if all of us were really engaging and discussing and applying scriptures together? And part of it means on the front end, coming together and say, what are the most important scriptures and teachings and topics for us to talk about? As you talk to others, as you think about your own life, what are the things that we as a church should be discussing we want to know that. 
you know, um, we've been talking about it with the elders. We spent time in the last elders meeting brainstorming. What do we think we need most, people need most? At our last director's meeting, pastor's meeting, we, we said, hey, send me. What do you think we need most? I want to put that out there to you, too. Send me emails. What do we need the most? We're in the process right now of trying to map out this Easter through next Easter. And what are the things that, as best we can discern, it would be the most helpful for you in your life, in your marriage, in your work? What are some of the scriptures that we should press into? Not because we necessarily feel like, oh, this is what I want to talk about, but you know what? As a church, we need this. Send those our way. So on the front end, it's about us coming together, right? And discovering what we need to discover. But even more than that, imagine how powerful it would be if instead of we hear a message and we go, yeah, that's good. Okay, now this, earthly thing, earthly thing. What if we followed that up with, now how do we apply that? What's one thing I can apply in my marriage, in my family, at work, at school, in my life? And let's make it real because up here, you have to talk broad, right? But in your groups, you could either in that group or offline with just two of you. You know, you, you could talk and have a deeper discussion. Okay, here's the challenge with my boss or my mom or my dad, my teacher. It was interesting. Uh, this week, I, um, I was talking to Becca uh, and um, Backman, who works with us, and, and she was telling about a situation where she was in a conversation with another person from Emmanuel, Maria Eiberg, and they were talking, and Maria was saying, yeah, so um, after the fact, we found out that in our school, uh, one of the local school districts here, in our school, um, they decided, the teachers thought it would be a good idea to show this R-rated movie that was, we thought was completely inappropriate to our kids. We didn't find about it until after the fact. And Becca's going, oh, my kids got that teacher. And so Becca was able to have, because she had a heads up from another Christian parent, because she's in a relationship and conversation, she was able to respectfully approach the teacher through, I think it was an email, and just start a conversation, say, tell me more about this. And the teacher ended up pulling the movie. Would have never even known until after the fact had you not been in relationship, in discussion. Think about what an asset it would be to have a kingdom community that can help us apply these principles in our specific situations to our marriages, to our families, to our careers, in our neighborhoods. You know, how do we do it? it there are every area of life has specific, when I mean Eric, I mean geographic, every area has got its specific challenges. And one of ours here is how do you actually do this when you're, we're so busy? Right? How do we make spiritual development, if you're a, a parent, of our kids a priority in the real world with the sports and the academics and all these kind of things? How do you actually make it work? Or how do you pray and serve and give and engage the scriptures when we already feel so stretched thin? What's working for you? What isn't? How do we witness well in hostile environments or where people just don't care? And that's just the discover continuum. And that's just this much the discover continuum. Big church, small church, doing kingdom life together can help us grow in all those areas. All those areas. Imagine where we'd be a year from now if all of us went all in on this. Wherever we're at in the journey, just taking that next step, pressing on in that next way. If we can put that slide, um, that, the latest one I gave you there, Mike, up on the screen. This isn't in your notes, but I just added this um, this morning here. The essence of Christianity it's following Jesus together in community. What if Emmanuel was a kingdom colony where everyone was discovering, connecting, stewarding, serving, reaching out, and leaving a legacy? And not in a way that was leaving us just frantic, but in a way that was life-giving and just felt like it was naturally happening in the flow of our lives. 
Well, we began this series with a discussion of how church is described as a body. It's meant to be whole. It's meant to be integrated. We talked about, we launched the series with Ephesians chapter 4, another of Paul's letter. And he talked about the church as a body. And it's easy to find professing Christians who disrespect the church. They disrespect the body. Now, granted, there are churches that aren't pursuing Jesus' vision of a body, of believers who are serving as his hands and his feet and his voice and his heart. And it's okay. In fact, it's good to give honest and helpful feedback regarding specific behaviors. But be very, 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 very careful that you don't slander the church of Jesus Christ and paint with broad brushes things that are slanderous when it comes to his bride. Because let us not forget, the body that we're called to be, it is also the bride that Jesus said he's coming back for. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let us embrace the, the church the way Jesus did. He believed in the church and he went all in. We began this series in Ephesians 4, where the Bible describes the church like a body. You know what it says in the very next chapter? We've started to integrate this into every one of our new members' classes, this passage from Ephesians 5. So Ephesians 4, Paul gives this metaphor of the body for us as the church. And then this is what he follows up with in the very next chapter, Ephesians 5. It says this about the bride of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved what? The church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the what? Church. When it came to his church, Jesus of Nazareth, was all in. He was all in. How do we do any less? How do we do any less than be an all-in group? You know, we have our annual meeting coming up next Sunday, and we've come so far as a church from our early days. We had more than 500 people here last Sunday. You know, now a lot of us, we come from much bigger churches even. We, I still think of our church as a small church, but when you look at the nation, only 25% of the churches in our country get bigger than 250. God's doing something here. This spring, we reached out to our denomination. We said, okay, when it comes to our constitution, we want to do a better job. We want that to be even more helpful than it is now. How do we do a better job of, of when it comes to conflict resolution and delegation and all these kind of things? And so we reached out to the denomination. We said, hey, can you give us the best of the best of the best? Give us your constitutions from churches that are thriving and have a great constitution. Because you can be a thriving church and just ignore your constitution because it's really bad and you just ignore it and you just keep going anyway, which you shouldn't do. Or you can have a really great constitution and ignore it and not be healthy, right? We said, give us best of the best. Crickets. Crickets. But does that mean, okay, we just, ours is good enough, so we just keep it there? No, we've got a team right now that's going to be getting together to say, how do we make it better? How do we even plow new ground if we have to, to make this the best it can possibly be in a couple of weeks? I'm really excited about this. We're flying up the director from Emmanuel Children's Home. He's going to be here when we launch Lent on a Sunday morning because we're going to launch this initiative. How do, we, how do we help more kids? How do we help more kids 
and Emmanuel Children's Home. So he's going to be up here. And one of the things that he says almost every time I talk to him, he says, Chris, you guys are setting the bar when it comes to partnerships. The way that you're doing partnerships with us, it sets the bar. Are we satisfied with that? No. We want to be a church where every single member and every member of their family can be engaged in real ministry that's making a real difference in people's life, substantively. We're not going to be satisfied until we're, see, we're seeing that, and then we won't be satisfied with that even. Because how do we help more people in, in more substantive ways? We just got done bringing two groups of teens up to Covenant Pines. Every year we go up there. They pull me aside and they say, Chris, you guys, the leaders you bring, the things you're doing, you're setting the bar. I'm like, we're just getting going. It's affirming to hear these things, but as a church, our eyes are not in the rearview mirror, except to look back and say, what could we have improved? Our eyes, we are on the next horizon. Can I get an amen? That is who we are. We are on the next horizon. We keep pressing on. We keep pressing on. We keep pressing on. Because when it comes to like, okay, we had 500 people here last Sunday. On any given Sunday, only one in four of the people that live around here are attending anywhere. That's a challenge. What would God have us to do to have such a compelling community that people who aren't even interested would say, I got I to gotta check this out because these people are not the same. Our constitution may be one of the better ones. But again, we, we set a team, we commissioned a team to get started on making it better. We may be setting the bar when it comes to our partnership with Emmanuel Children's Home, but we are going to keep moving. How do we make a bigger impact in this world where there's so many people starving to death in poverty, in prisons, all these things? What would God have us to do to make a substantive difference in their lives? And again, we may be ahead of the curve when it comes to our youth and family and children's ministries, but I'm huddling up with Pastor Dan and Melissa, our children's director, in a couple weeks, and we're going to say, okay, where would we, by God's grace, want to see our seniors in high school arrive? Okay? And what about our ninth graders? What about our middle schoolers? What about our elementary? Okay, what would God have us to do to give them every possible opportunity to become the men and women of God that God created them to be? We're not satisfied. And it is my hope that as those of us who are leading these things now, as we continue to, to pass the torch, that we will pass on Emmanuel's passion for reaching new PRs and pass it on to the next generation. Came across this quote as I was preparing for the message. It's a good one to leave you with as we draw near to the end of our time together. This is from another commentary uh, on the passage that we read earlier from Philippians chapter 3. This commentator writes, and they're talking about the specific situation from Philippi. They said, while there were no doubt conflicts within the congregation, and then they, they note how Paul called them out in the letter. He's like, you two yahoos, you know, in his letter, is just great. Um, the Philippians appear to be a healthy congregation with a couple exceptions, in contrast to troubled groups in Corinth and Galatia. Well, then can they relax and rest? Paul's answer is an emphatic no. The world is too perilous. The gospel is too glorious for them to be content with past achievements. They must follow Paul's example and press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase it says. The world is too perilous and the gospel is too glorious for us to be content as a church. Can I get an amen?
Amen. We have a Savior who's coming. We eagerly await. Can I get an amen? Until that trumpet sounds, we've been called by God to serve as his ambassadors, to shine as a kingdom colony in this fallen world. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen that sounds like an amen? There we go. Amen. I'm all in. (laughs) So how about this one? And there's a place to write this one down in your notes. Will you commit or recommit to becoming an all-in member of the body of Christ? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Well, I've never been a chart, part of a church where so many people are so invested. I'm so thankful for you. So thankful for the way you pour out your time and your talents, the way that you give, give, give to people, the way that you do your best to try to make people feel welcome, the way you try to live this out in your daily lives. This is a church where I don't know literally of any, we used to call them Bible bubble people. Um, nobody that just lives in this little bubble. We're all out there trying to do the best we can. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. So as we go today, I want to pray a blessing over you that comes right from the book of Philippians. It's a thankfulness kind of thing. It's a prayer. It's a blessing. It's all of the above. Would you please stand and receive this from my heart, from the book of Philippians as we close here today? says this, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news. And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you and in us, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and give you peace. Let me pray that over you. God, we pray grace and peace. Lord, I pray even as we set our personal and congregational goals, I pray that you give us an experience of your grace and your peace, that we don't feel guilt and shame that comes from the accuser, but rather we feel inspiration and encouragement from our advocate. I pray for each and every person that you'll start to give them some specific things that they can can pursue in the months and years ahead. And we pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.